Hello and welcome to another episode of AdventuresIn.net. I'm Sean Kleber, your host, and today we're going to continue our talk with Christian Wentz about OWASP Top 10. Please enjoy the second half. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Okay, so uh, next on the list, our good old buddy, SQL Injection. Oh, yeah, that's, and actually that's incorrect. And I mean, you're right and you're not right at the same time. And this is this is the thing that, that irritates me Oh, no, that's not not that the thing that irritates me the most, but that's that's a curious thing. Let me put it that way. So, if if you have the time, maybe I can rant for a minute. Sure. Is that is that okay? Oh yeah. Um, so SQL injection, right, was the the number one item of all previous OS top ten lists. I, I mean, it was called injection because there's not only SQL injection, but everything that is a query language can be injected, uh, like whatever uh, XPath uh, injection or LDAP injection. But you know. When talking about, talking about injection, 99.9% .9 of uh, cases, it's just SQL injection. And so SQL injection was also the top item in the 2017 list. And I don't know about you, but I mean, you talk a lot with, with new developers as well. And many of them probably have rarely written a line of SQL in their career because nowadays, uh, especially with web frameworks, you're more or less not, not forced, but encouraged to just use an OR mapper like Hibernate or Entity Framework or stuff, right? So you have an API, you work with, with objects, you don't write SQL. And I mean, SQL injection works because in SQL, we have an architectural problem. We have commands and data in the same string. And if that string is concatenated with user data, of course, we assume the user data is data, but it could also be commands, right? And that's, that's SQL injection. When you're using an object relational mapper, then, then you have an API where you say, okay, this is a new object of type X, add this to the, to the repository. So you distinguish between, okay, this is data, object properties, and this is, these are commands like a method to add, a method to remove, a method to update. And basically, SQL injection is gone then. There are still, of course, ways to inject uh, SQL there. And all OR mappers, they also have methods to actually run verbatim SQL because of performance reasons, for instance, right? But yeah, so with, with an OR mapper, SQL injection is gone. And I mean, if you don't have an OR mapper, which I can fully understand, performance, I think, is a key issue sometimes, then you still know that you have prepared statements and basically you have placeholders in your SQL and 
then you assign values to those placeholders and then the database engine or database extension or database provider or however it is called in your stack of choice knows, okay, this is data and this data will be applied to that position. And again, SQL injection is not possible. And with all of that background, I was surprised that SQL injection is the number one risk for web applications in 2017. I really was surprised. Looking at my own audits, I mean, of course, I look at how the application interacts with the database. And if I see that, you know, strings are concatenated together, then yeah, I, I have a hunch and then I look closer. But if I see, oh, okay, that's an OR mapper. And yeah, they are not using that specific API call to run verbatim SQL, then it's just unlikely that I find SQL injection. Still, it was number one. So I was looking at the numbers of the 2017 lists and was looking at looking looking at you know the, the just the the absolute numbers of those people who uh, uh, sent in their their audit results and yeah many found some kind of sql injection but many 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 more found cross site scripting which basically means injecting uh, javascript code right and in the end the result of that uh, list was that sql injection was on number 1 was the number 1 spot and cross site scripting javascript injection which I, I think is the most common attack or the most successful attack was at number seven. So I was surprised as well. And Ovest actually felt felt urged to provide a blog post on that. And basically the reasoning was, yeah, we look at the incidence rate and, you know, if you find cross-site scripting once, you maybe find it a hundred times in that application. So the numbers are maybe skewed towards the, the XSS attack. But still, I was surprised to see SQL injection up there that highly. You know, it's interesting. For yeah. Well, because in the last two months, I have actually fixed some SQL injection issues in some of our applications. And the reason being is these are applications that were written five or maybe even yep. 10 years ago yep. by people old, yeah. Who, yeah. who didn't know any better at the time. Right. Yeah. And then it just sits out there and sits out there because there's always something yep. new to do. And we were actually doing an audit, which I don't know that the company I work for has been doing them for that long. And, you know, it's like, hey, we, we need to go take a look at this because, yeah, this, you know, this is a vulnerability. So I can see in that sense, maybe it is yeah. still high, right? Because of the legacy applications. In legacy applications, absolutely. But, but I do I say, would still argue that in legacy applications, you have a lot of cross-site scripting. <laughs> well, I was going to say, actually, I agree with you. I think cross-site <laughs> scripting is more there's a chance of that more than SQL these days because of all yeah, the things absolutely. you can do the with JavaScript and and all the the WYSIWYG editors and the ways that it can get injected yeah. into a browser page versus SQL being injected. So I agree with you. I I do think cross-site scripting is is probably a higher risk in this day and age. Yeah. So that was my my hunch as well in 2017, also in 2021. So I looked at the list. And so number three is injection, and I don't see cross-site scripting in there. And then I was looking at the CWEs, and it turns out the injection category basically consists of SQL injection, a couple of other injections maybe, and cross-site scripting. Wait a minute. So they, they merged the top one item where I said, okay, this position is just not justified, and the top seven item where I say it needs to be ranked higher, and together... They come in at number three, although you add the numbers. Well, it turns out, according to the 2021 results of that survey, SQL injection alone would have come in at number eight or number 10. 
Because, you know, as, as you just said, it, it does happen like a legacy applications. But apart from legacy applications, there's, there's almost no excuse for having an SQL injection vulnerability in the application. So they merge this with cross-site scripting. I mean, this sounds super intuitive. No, it does not. And I mean, if you say injection, if you throw the term injection at me, right, and I work in that field, the first thing that does not come to mind is cross-site scripting. I mean, technically, how does cross-site scripting work? I mean, cross-site scripting is a, sorry to say that here bluntly, is, is a stupid term. I think it was coined in 1998 by the Internet Explorer team when they tried to find out a good name for the attack. And they came up with cross-site scripting and then found out that CSS was already taken as an acronym. So, <laughs> so you know, XSS it was. But still, it's, it's just, the name is just, I don't like the name. A better name for the attack that describes it better would be JavaScript and HTML injection. And there we are again, right? Most of the time, uh, the way cross-site scripting works is that we have... HTML or some other output format, JavaScript, for instance. But let's stick with HTML. And then an attacker manages to inject JavaScript code into that HTML. And basically, it's very similar to injecting commands into an SQL string. So it's not entirely incorrect from a technical point of view. But still, since cross-site scripting is called cross-site scripting and not something with injection, calling that category injection is maybe a bit weird. And I mean, if you if you consider SQL injection alone would come in at 8 or 10, maybe cross-site scripting alone would come in a little bit higher than that to justify the top three positions. So maybe they could have just called it cross-site scripting in France or well, something like that. The, but yeah. Well, that's what I'm thinking is they probably combined them because they wanted injection yeah. to stay higher on the list because they felt like yeah. it's a, it's a I, bigger I, I risk, right? So they, so they then combined them into injection, which you're right. Yeah, cross-site scripting needs a new <laughs> new terminology. Yeah, yeah. So these are yeah, exactly. So these are the top three, and I think much is covered uh, in in those three, right? And I would really argue these are the most common ones, especially with uh, injection as now this big, major, all-encompassing topic with SQL injection and cross-site scripting in them. Let's have a look at number four, if you want. Um, number four is new because it was added by that survey, so it was not. Basically, data-driven, there was a survey in its insecure design. I mean, let me tell you a story. In, in the 2017 list, um, there was a release candidate, and that release candidate uh, looked significantly different from the, the final version, actually, of the OVS Pop 10 2017. But the release candidate had some, some interesting items. One was underprotected APIs. And I mean, English is my third language, so I have no clue about it. But underprotected sounded like I've never heard that before. I knew what it was supposed to mean, but have you heard underprotected before? So I looked at in, in um, Webster's dictionary of the English language and I couldn't find the word, right? So that was weird enough. But one of the other items of that list was insufficient attack protection. And I mean, at first it sounds like, yeah, sure, that's an attack risk Very broad. that you don't have protection against uh, those, those attacks, but it's not actionable. And now with insecure design, I mean, you know, I, I get what, what they are saying, right? I get the intention of that. So we have design flaws. And I mean, this this whole shift left or move left thing where you want to put security earlier in the, in the process and the use of secure, whatever, design patterns, uh, reference architectures, etc. It does absolutely make sense. But it's hard for me to say that I can, can get some, some really, really, really uh, actionable items out of that 
insecure design item. But yeah, it's not a list of attacks alone. It's a list of risks. And of course, having an insecure design is a risk. It's interesting because um, I come from a design background. So when I see insecure design, I, I initially think of the UI, the flow, the f- user-facing function of it, which I know this this is not what this is getting at, right? So I think more like insecure architecture, which fits better in my head. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But yeah, it's it, it's still exactly. pretty broad, but right, it's a, this is something that's going to take years for our industry yeah. to build more of these, right? Because we're, we're still relatively young. So is uh, it, absolutely, it would, absolutely. Yeah, but still. Wouldn't insecure... Yeah architecture kind of be in the next one, the security misconfiguration? Maybe the term is, uh, yeah, indeed the next one is insecure configuration. Actually, uh, one of the CWEs in insecure design is, is a specific attack called uh, HTTP response splitting. And the idea here is that you have like one, you have set an HTTP header with user supplied data and the user supplied data contains a carriage return line feed, which allows to inject an an extra header. All modern web servers and frameworks have protection from that attack, right? So it's an ancient attack. And I mean, it's an attack that looks like injection, right? So why is that not in the number three item, but in security science? So some of those things I just just don't get. But yeah, maybe maybe the architecture or the architectural aspects should be put more more emphasis on for for that item. Whereas the secure configuration, secure configuration as as the number five item is something where where you know they're they're too hard speeding. <laughs> so I have the developer heart, right? Who says, you know, I'm a developer, I'm a heart surgeon. DevOps, running a system, managing it, uh, hardening a server. Yeah, yeah, that's something other people can do. So please, please do that. Go away. Do it. Just do it. Don't talk to me. Do it. Right. But on the other hand, especially with modern frameworks, there are so many things I can configure. For instance, there are, there's almost a dozen of HTTP headers that provide protection from certain attacks. So for instance, a content security policy is a mechanism that is a defense and death protection against cross-site scripting and a super effective one, right? And it takes some effort to create that. But yeah, it's it's a configuration option because DevOps just can't set this header. This header tells the browser where to load resources from and some other things. I mean, the team that's running the servers, they have no idea what the application is doing in most cases, right? The development team knows exactly what's happening. So that's a configuration the development team has to do. Also, when using cookies, right? We talked about cookies and that same side mode for cookies. Setting the same side mode, yeah, it's a configuration. And if you don't set it, then you may have an insecure configuration. Basically, you should set those security features anyway, because even if an auditor has no clue about what he or she is doing, they can still have a look at which HTTP headers are being set, right? And if they're not set, they just have a text template where they say, yeah, this is a risk because, and then, you know, they paste the, the template they use in all of the audits. I mean, I don't do it much differently. <laughs> Truth to be told, it's easy to test, but it's also easy to fix, right? So securing cookies, we have the same side flag. We have the HTTP only flag, which makes the cookie invisible for JavaScript, which pre- prevents some cross-site scripting turns into session hijacking attacks. There's the secure flag. The secure flag was actually introduced when cookies were introduced in the mid-1990s, which makes sure that a cookie can only be accessed via uh, HTTPS or is only sent via HTTPS, right? So again, we this kind of ties into uh, the cryptographic failures item, uh, number two, right? So ensuring that HTTPS is used uh, all of the time, right? So these are these are basically configuration options. and And that's what this configuration is all about. 
I mean, when I talk to people about configuring a web application and a secure configuration, the first thing that always seems to come to mind is, hey, I would like to protect uh, from uh, protection from denial of server service attacks. And I say, yeah, I mean, that's also something that uh, where you, you know have to check your application if you're prone to that. But especially denial of service is something that is super hard to protect from within the application, right? Because that's more the network stack. And also sometimes, I mean, if, uh, I don't know, I, I read today that uh, that Justin Bieber is going on tour and supposedly, I mean, I, I'm actually, they, he comes to Munich, right? I'm, I'm not going, yeah, sorry, but I think that the website's Selling those tickets, I think actually the preset started like yesterday or today. They were denial, distributed denial of service attack, right? Because probably, you know, millions of people tried to get tickets. It's super hard to defend against that. And those ticket vending sites, I mean, they don't have these spikes in traffic every single day. So it doesn't just make sense for them to just, you know, a hundredfold their number of servers just for these few incidents where, where high in demand tickets are being sold, right? So, but that that's not what the the focus of that uh, category is the the security misconfiguration category but it's really like okay those configuration things that uh, that you can do at least from an application development point of view the things you can do is you know setting the HTTP headers setting uh, cookie flags uh, configuring your sessions that you know they don't run for 24 hours because that just makes the window of uh, the session being hijacked uh, larger etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's the idea there all right. Number six is vulnerable and outdated components. I think this one really applies to a lot which of Which sounds... Nowadays. You know, everything's built that way. Oh, yep. it does. And, you know, it's one of those things that sounds easy, right? So let's not spend much time on it. But then on the other hand, I mean, is a remedy just having a process in place that automatically updates everything? In theory, yes. But you may have heard, right, that I think there were two uh, uh, NPM packages uh, last week uh, that have been taken over by attackers. So if you update it to the latest version, you had malware on your system, mm. right? So automatically updating, uh, I don't know. Uh, and uh, of course, you have no guarantee that things work. Right. I recently did an experiment. So I, I just created a blank uh, Angular and a blank uh, React.js app. And then I ran uh, NPM audit. And basically, you see you, uh, that the, uh, and actually NPM audit is automatically run when, when you do an NPM install. And each of those two frameworks had packages that had either were either deprecated or had mo at least moderate security vulnerabilities. Right. I mean, most of them probably were not exploitable in the setting of the framework, but still. And just have a look at uh, your, your local folder where you install those big frameworks and just see, oh, yeah, it's an Hello World application, but I have 150 megabytes of files and a lot of dependencies. And not, not that this is necessarily bad, but you're responsible to... A, know all of them, right? Because you're that, that's part of your, your, your production system now mm -hmm. and you have them up to date. Yeah. And that makes it, makes it really hard. It, it's a bit easier if you have uh, one of the Java or uh, .NET framework, uh, well, or .NET, yeah. because it, basically, even if it's open yeah. source in parts, right, it, it comes out of one hand, right? So you don't have this, this myriad of, of, of tendencies. Well, and that's interesting because uh, we have some Angular applications in the company I'm working for is moving away from Angular. That's one of the reasons. Mm -hmm. Is because there's so many open source engineering packages that, you know, you've got 10 levels deep. And with Blazor, yeah, you've got some open source, but a lot more of it, you know, is coming from straight from Microsoft, right? But with some of our older applications, ones that are still running web forms, right? They may be using log for net 1.2, yeah. but 
one of our other DLLs, like our repository library is using 1.6. And you pull that in and the first one blows up and you try to update it to 1.6. And it's like, no, I can't do that. So it's, it's much more difficult to keep your stack up to date, right? Than, than you would think just looking at it from the outside looking in, right? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. It's a harder problem than, than it sounds. I, I totally agree. All right. Number seven uh, actually is, a, is an even harder problem, right? Uh, identification and authentication failures. So there's that failure term again. That was the number two in the previous list. It was called broken authentication back then. And I mean, you know, authentication is hard, especially if you have whatever single sign-on and OAuth or OpenID Connect. But on the other hand, are you really rolling your own implementation these days, especially of even just of, of authentication, right? If you're using a framework, authentication, identification is part of the framework. OAuth, uh, OpenID Connect is super complex, but chances are your framework has solved it for you. And if not, then maybe you should just use another framework or at least one of those those libraries uh, that were vetted and are certified. And I mean, especially for OAuth, there are certified libraries if you want to use whatever, JavaScript or .NET or whatever. And therefore, this this fell to the to the number seven spot because basically that's that's something that is now part of the application or there are existing uh, proven de facto standard solutions, right? So that's uh, that's why it was demoted to, to number seven. Number eight is um, software and data integrity failures. It sounds like a new item, but basically it, it contains one CWE insecure deserialization. That was something that was the number eight spot in the 2017 list and people were really surprised. Uh, but yeah, there's one specific stack where this was maybe just more common than in other stacks. So that's why it was put in here. So the idea is if you get data from a user and deserialize it, depending on your stack, you could deserialize an object you do not want. Maybe an object that then allows you to, to run an executable. On the other hand, if you just say, yeah, I deserialize, but I provide the type of, of object I want, because when I deserialize data, usually I have a, a kind of a contract or, or an API, so I know what I'm getting, then this really protects you. So the, the new 2021 list just makes this a bit broader and now says, okay, software and data integrity failures, which includes the uh, deserialization aspects but also supply chain attacks, right? So if you have a CI or CD, so uh, continuous integration and continuous delivery pipeline, every part of that pipeline could be attacked. So you might have an, an application with, um, with no vulnerabilities, right? But somewhere in your pipeline, there's a vulnerability and then someone can, can inject uh, code. Uh, one thing that actually all modern browsers do support is called uh, sub-resource integrity. And even if you have not uh, encountered this before specifically, you may have seen this when you're using a library. So whatever, you have a, a script tag and then 
you load in whatever JavaScript file or, or a CSS file in a, in a link element. And then if you have the integrity HTML attribute, basically that contains an SHA hash of the file you want to load. And if the file you want to load has a different hash, then the file is not executed, right? So even if you have a supply chain attack and someone messes with the, the JavaScript file, right? Using uh, sub-resource integrity would prevent that malicious file being executed on, on your system, right? And that also falls into that category. And, and most frames, so if you go to other, let's take an arbitrary example. If, if you go to, to the Bootstrap website, right? And look up, okay, how do I incorporate Bootstrap in, in my web application? Um, then basically that, that markup that you get there includes the uh, integrity HTML attribute. That's, that's basically what it's, uh, what it's doing. Yeah, uh, we're almost done, actually. So number nine is uh, security logging and monitoring failures. So yeah, do log and do have a process in place to, to look at those logs, right? Uh, many just do the, the first of them and then are wondering why their hard drive is full with logs that no one is, is looking at. It's, it's like having a backup. Having a backup is nice, right? But if you never attempted a restore, then you just don't know if you actually do have a backup or not. Right? Know, same with uh, <laughs> logging and monitoring, right? Well, it's interesting because some of our applications right, have been logged into database tables for years, right? Yeah. But, there, yeah. but there's yeah. no reports on it. it. It doesn't get surfaced. You have to go look in the database. Um, but when I started working at this company, they're using uh, an app called Seek, S-E-Q. And mm-hmm. you can basically bump logs into it and it's a dashboard right a web-based dashboard that you go to and it shows you all the errors or all the warnings or whatever you want to surface and right we've got like 50 applications so you go to seek and you're getting a new thing every half a second and i changed the logging in one of our apps to go from database to seek and we got a ton of new errors popping up which created new bug tickets which is like it surface this as a higher uh, higher level issue right so yeah, if you if you're just logging into a database and not doing anything with it, you're <laughs> you're wasting everybody's time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So you do have to have a process. It's not always just the code itself. You have to have a process, right? All right. These were nine out of ten, right? So number ten, and number ten came from the survey, and in the 2017 list, there was an item at number four called XML external entities, and that's an attack that works like this. And I simplified a little bit, but basically it works like this. You have an application that accepts XML and then parses that XML. That XML contains an entity, ampersand, attack, colon, uh, semicolon, sorry, semicolon. Of course, that entity doesn't exist, but in the XML, you can, of course, define system entities. So in the same XML, that ampersand attack, semicolon, uh, entity was defined as a system entity pointing to a URL. It could be an HTTP URL or a file URL. And what that means was, if the application is parsing that XML, it would replace the entity with the contents of the URL or the file. So it would either include a local file or call an arbitrary URL. This, I mean, you know you know how this sounds, right? Although I'm a bit uh, exaggerating, but you know the stars have to be aligned correctly, right? So it, it has to be snowing in Louisiana in July, so that this works, right? <laughs> but yeah, so this was number four. I was really surprised. And, you know, I was auditing when the list came out. Actually, I still remember I was auditing a .NET application. And I thought, okay, I, I, I mean, I've heard of that attack before. I was looking for it. But I mean, I've, I've never really looked hard for it. Let's look hard now. And then I was digging into, into the .NET uh, code. And then I saw that starting from .NET 
framework 4.5.2 on. I don't know when that came out, 2015 or something. The framework was secure by default because it was just not parsing those system entities any longer, right? So this was a this was a non-existing attack when the list came out, at least you know for for .NET, and then it was looking at at PHP and PHP had this feature disabled by default since 2014 or something or 2013, right? And this is at number four. Why do why am I telling you this story? Because I mean this this attack XML external entities was merged into a security misconfiguration, right? Because it's a configuration thing, obviously, whether you parse uh, those entities or not. But if that attack works, then an attacker can prompt your application to probably send an HTTP request, maybe to an internal system. The web server can access the internal system. I, as the external attacker, cannot. Now, if that HTTP request to an external system does something, then we have server-side request forgery, SSRF. So it's like cross-site request forgery, but this time it's the server that does the HTTP request, not the victim browser. I mean, if you have an, an HTTP endpoint that is known to the attacker and that automatically authenticates and authorizes the web server and that does some bad things when doing an HTTP GET request, then, you know, the stars are aligned even more perfectly, right? So it's not only snowing in uh, in Louisiana, but it's... Uh, Things are flying. I, I, I know what else. I, 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 would have, I would have almost said, right, and you win the Super Bowl, but yeah, that's, that's a different story, right? Um, but... <laughs> Again, I, I know, I know, and I have high hopes. Seriously, I, I do have high hopes. I do have high hopes. So yeah, so this is number ten. Yeah. But because it was in that survey, what is an underestimated attack? There right. are really nice uh, proofs of concepts mm -hmm. of that attack, but the stars have to be aligned nicely. I mean, There's... you know, if you have Google, if you have Google Calendar, right. right, you can subscribe to, or you can add another calendar, an iCal feed. Mm -hmm. If you paste in the URL, then some Google server does an HTTP request to the URL you're providing, uh, you're providing to Google, right? So you can forge a server-side request. But does this lead to a security implication? Rarely, I would say. The, the data isn't there yet. It's basically people think this, yeah. is, this is becoming yeah. an issue, but there isn't enough data to exactly. support it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. I mean, you can... You can always argue with that list, right? How how relevant is that list? I mean, that of course you can say, if, you know, if I, I often do uh, security workshops with companies, right? And when I talk about different aspects of web app security, I'm not using the order in which these items are on the list here, right? Because I'm I'm using a little bit of a different order. So I start with common validation and looking at HTTP, and then I start with cross-site scripting really early on, and SQL injection comes really really late for for reasons we we have already discovered, right? On the other hand. The OVASP list, I mean, several uh, certifications rely on it. So basically you say, okay, please check all those boxes uh, from, from the OVASP top 10 that you have, they are fulfilling uh, all of this. And still, I mean, it's, it encompasses basically everything. And you can always argue. And I mean, I've, I've argued a lot, especially with the 2017 list. But, you know, I'm, I'm in the... I'm close to the finishing line of of writing ASP.NET Core security for 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 Manning. So like one and a half chapters are missing. Oh, I'm I'm still writing one and a half chapters, right? But I I did take a look at the Overs Top Ten when it came out just to check. Okay, does does the things I think are important are they somehow reflected or covered in that Overs Top Ten list? And what I found out was that I did cover every item, some to more degree, some to less degree, and there's no chapter in the book 
where there's not one item in the OVS top 10 list that is associated with it, right? And that, that surprised me. Actually, I, I didn't expect that, right? And I mean, you know, I, I, the, I started work, working on that before the list came out, right? So I had no idea about the list. And as you saw, there were some items in it that were newer that changed. But that just proved me. And I, again, I was just surprised a little bit that all of that items, all of those items, they do have their place. You can argue about, you know, should we use that category or should stuff be moved around or should the order of things be changed and should server-side request forgery really be in here? And yeah, I did cover server-side request forgery in one of those chapters, but yeah, like, you know, a, a half-page uh, sidebar because, uh, right? But yeah, so I, I think it's it's still a, a nice list to look through and most of these, most of the items on the list, they are also uh, actionable, right? But yeah, it's a list of, of risks, OVASP has also the uh, Application Security Verification Standard, ASVS, and that's a list of requirements, right? So this is something where you can tick the boxes. But ticking boxes, in my opinion, doesn't make applications more secure. What makes an application more secure is knowing the risks and mitigating those risks. Because, I mean, most of the attacks in that list, they are something about decades old, but they are still relevant, right? So you have to, you have to know what you are fighting, and on the other hand, you still have to, to anticipate new attacks or new twists to, to old attacks. And that's why I think that the uh, OVS Top 10 is still, still has its place when it comes to, to web application security. And I mean, it's always a nice refresher reading through that and then maybe thinking, ah, yeah, I remember and I should take a look at that or I should incorporate it. And yep. the list is technology agnostic. Right. right. The difference is, right, so uh, when you uh, separate the, the, the wheat from the chaff, right, is, is when you do the countermeasures. That's specific, right? There are different APIs in .NET and in various Java frameworks and in PHP and et cetera, et cetera. But the attacks, they are the same. So all of us developers, we are in the same boat. And the, the OVS top 10 list might... And I think that's, that's the main, main aspect of that list. They create... The, the list creates awareness for web application security. And if you have awareness you can start anticipating and mitigating attacks. Right, which is important. You know, and the fact that it Absolutely. is required for, for a number of audits or to sign off and say, yeah, you're secure. Yep. Uh, there's definitely value in that. So so this list is, okay, is, cool. is really great, but kind of what's the best way for developers to go about learning all the things and knowing how to mitigate them or prevent them or make sure they don't happen to them? I mean, yeah, knowing knowing those uh, those items on the list is very beneficial. But uh, and, and I mean, only Christian if you my my opinion is go by Christian book. <laughs> there yeah. you go. <laughs> that that might help, but it's tied to a speedonet uh, speedonet core, right? So I mean, you have to see the attacks. That at least I'm convinced about that. You have to see the attack so that you are afraid of the attack, and then remember the attack when implementing an application. So in the book, which you which you are kind enough to to mention, most of the chapters they start with a, a real life attack, right? So I said, okay, you know, this this big website was attacked, and the reason was this attack. This is how the attack works in a singled out setting, and this is how you defend against the attack, right? So you have to know the attacks. But then to to answer the question, how to best be prepared for that, knowing those risks is uh, is is of course key. But you have to know your framework. Some frameworks already have protection from that attack. So, so Angular has basically built-in cross-site scripting protection. But there are like three Angular APIs where you bind certain attributes, for instance, where you can catch cross-site scripting. So that's what you specifically have to learn. There are ways, there are ways um, to tell Angular so, to um, be insecure 
and you have to know what you're doing. Exactly, exactly. Why you're doing that. Exactly. So so the defense mechanisms, they are, most of the time, they are tied to the stack or to the framework or to the technology. The attacks, they are, they are all the same. So the OVASP Top 10 is certainly a good starting point on all of the other publications by OVASP. But yeah, defending against it, I mean, there are cheat sheets for a variety of technologies. So whatever, cross-site scripting or SQL injection prevention with Java, with .NET, with PHP. So that helps to a certain degree, but uh, I would rather than stick with the documentation and additional resources for the technology of choice. Because nowadays, all of those stacks, they have learned that at least they have to take security seriously. So they also document their security mechanisms. Great. So any last right. you know, few things to cover or do you think that's pretty good? From from the list uh, point of view, I would say that's that's all I think was was interesting. And yeah, I, I always complain about uh, tiny aspects of the list, right? But yeah, I, I still believe in, in its value uh, and it's, in its relevance as an, as an awareness. And what's the name of your book going to be? Uh, it will be ASP.NET Core Security. Go create it. And it will cover ASP.NET yeah. Core security. Well, we'll add a link and, to the uh, show. Yeah, it's, <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, and uh, so .NET 6 uh, came out uh, last week, actually. Right. So the week before we are recording this. And uh, it's a long-term support version with three years of support. So uh, we thought, okay, we, we await the, the uh, finishing stage of that book until that version has come out because they still changed a few things. A few things now work differently. Um, so we wanted to wait for that. Definitely. All right. So if uh, our listeners have questions and they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Probably the best way is uh, to contact me via Twitter or I'm um, also on LinkedIn, okay. obviously. Your Twitter handle? Your Twitter uh, handle? can be reached very easily. Uh, it's C-H-W-E-N-Z. So C-H-W-E-N-Z. Right. right. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So now right. I'm going to move us into pick time. So go with okay. picks. Caleb, what's your pick? I've got a few things to choose from because I actually I have started building a list. I ran out like two weeks ago. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> right, so, you know, you got to have a little backlog. One of them I, that's uh, I find really interesting, it's called, it's a book called The Art of Impossible. It's by Stephen okay. Kotler. He... He focuses on flow research and getting into flow. Mm -hmm. And so this book, he's done a, a bunch of books, you know, focusing on different things. But this book is basically a primer on getting into flow more and by building your lifestyle and your life around um, getting into flow states. So there, there's a lot in there, but it's uh, it's a really interesting read. So, all right. That, that's fantastic. That's That sounds actually really interesting because I like being in the flow, but... You know, there, there are days where it's easier to oh, yeah. achieve that. Yeah, I, I wish I wish I get <laughs> in the flow is, every day. It's not. <laughs> That's not yeah. the case. <laughs> All right. Christian, uh, what pick do you have for us and our listeners? Uh, so what do I have to pick? I'm so not used to the concept. Any TV shows, uh, books, activities that you're involved in that you just want to let our listeners know about? So my one of the things I love doing is is going to concerts, but you know these days it's uh, it's a bit challenging, right? So, so because, who, uh, <laughs> they they are all canceled. Uh, so so I watch more TV than I usually do, and I started watching uh, um, Squid Games, but uh, Squid Game, sorry, but I'm in the middle of the season, so please don't contact me with any spoilers. And even worse, I I laughed um, a money heist. The uh, the show on I believe it's it's on in, in the US it's on Netflix as well, uh, like that and uh, that is uh, just 
Yeah, and uh, but again, no no spoilers, please, because uh, so I think they just roll. Oh, no, they are rolling out the second half of the uh, of the final season in like a week or two. So I didn't watch the first half of the season because you know, talking about coming into flow. Once you started uh, watching that, it's it's hard to stop. So you're binging, and uh, then of course, if if there's a sudden end and maybe even a cliffhanger, and just say, oh, oh. So that's it. Uh, I'm and I um, mostly like uh, reading uh, reading fiction. So I think I've read all I don't know thirty books of uh, Jeffrey Deaver. But there's still a pile of three I have to work through. So, but I try to read not uh, that many um, books related to work. Um, so, who's your favorite band? But maybe it's a good thing. My favorite band. Oh, that's that's super hard to say. I think. So I was I was talking to Caleb prior to the show. So I I, I love going to Aerosmith concerts, and so I hope to be able to see them once more. I, I did see them in Louisiana. Uh, sorry, in, in in New Orleans actually, to be to be exact, uh, like decade ago or, yeah. or or even longer. So uh, that's what I like. So old old style, old old men still doing what they've been doing yep. for for yep, fifty I'm years. Right? You know, Aerosmith, ACDC. All right. You know. Yeah, I, I did Rush. see them in Munich as well. I see DC actually a couple of years yeah. ago. I even saw Guns N' Roses, but that was that was an interesting experience now with the yeah. new old lineup. Awesome. All right, so my pick this week is right. going to be the game Diablo 2 Resurrected. Okay. So, you know, I remember playing Diablo 2. The remastered version. first came out, you know, way back okay. when. Yeah. Remastered, yeah. And my kid used to watch me play it all the yeah. time when he was really little. And he started playing games and things like that too. So yeah. they've released or re-released yeah. it with completely upgraded nice. graphics, a lot of gameplay engine. Wow. Everything is still there that was in the original game. It just has now been modernized. So a lot of the detail in the okay. graphics is, is much, much better. And so they're making a little bit of updates. And so it might be you know fun to play because I, I've recently heard that Diablo 4 has been delayed because of issues mm-hmm. and lots of things going on with, with Blizzard. So if you want a little bit of uh, you know, retrospective gaming but uh, with the modern graphics, check out Diablo 2 Resurrected. Yeah, I think the original one, when did this come out? Like 20 years ago? 2001, yeah, 2000, something like that? I, I still remember playing that. Yeah, wow. Played okay. Yeah. First, that one wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Same here, yeah. same here. Oh, wow. Nice. Very amazing. You know, when you start playing it, how, how much you then suddenly can remember, which you already forgot, right? Isn't it? Yep. So, so you still know how to how to play the game, right? Even though you haven't done it maybe well, before. One thing that's decades. nice about the, the Resurrected yeah. is you can actually toggle the graphics back and forth. So you can, uh, while you're playing, you can toggle <laughs> okay. and say, what yeah, did yeah. this look like before? It's like, oh, big difference. And then they redid all the cutscenes, nice. which is that, that's awesome. So even even the, the original cutscene that was going, why don't they make a movie? Why don't they make a movie? But, you know, they redid them completely and made them, you know, much higher res, things like that. So check it out. All right. I will. So if our, our listeners want to get in touch with us at the show, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can get me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. And dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> so. and I'm at Caleb Wells Coats. All right. Thanks, guys. Great show. Yeah. Thanks for, yeah. for coming on the show and talking about OWASP. Yeah. Thanks, Christian. Christian. Thanks. It was great. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll catch everybody else on the next episode of AdventuresIn.net. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.